Dear listeners, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Wednesday night at our mics for challenging your popular opinions about movies, but we think you're crazy to make us record an episode telling you what we think about this John Hughes classic. You see this movie as you want to see it, in the simplest of terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what it taught us is that each one of us is a brain, a basket case, and a criminal. And maybe those labels don't fit anymore. That's why we have a question for you. The Breakfast Club. Dated or timeless? Sincerely yours, The Real Boys. Welcome to Is It Really? The podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Brandon Sharp. I'm Zach Smith-Michaels. And I'm Mitch Dupree. Zach, why don't you give us the plot of The Breakfast Club? Five high school students from different walks of life are stuck in Saturday detention under the bullish principal, Mr. Vernon. The group includes Rebel Judd, Princess Ringwald, Outcast Sheedy, Brainy Guy from SNL, and Gordon Bombay, the jock. Each has a chance to tell their story, making the others realize just how much they have in common after all. Well, The Breakfast Club is the OG teen movie. Teen movies can be light and funny, like Clueless or Sixteen Candles, or they can have a serious edge like Juno. Do you feel like other movies within this genre have aged well? So it's very interesting to me because I, the first time I saw Breakfast Club was a couple days before high school on my sister's recommendation because she was like, this is exactly what high school is going to be like for you. So <laughs> I remember watching Breakfast Club and I was like, oh, not at all. <laughs> and then a couple years after I graduated, 21 Jump Street came out. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing that movie and going, oh, yeah, no, this was my high school experience. Exactly. And I think that a lot of these movies, they try to take themselves too seriously. It's like some like 40 year old man going, this is what the teens are going through today. But I think a lot of times these comedies tend to age well because, you know, there's so many awkward and weird situations in high school anyway, that comedy Mm -hmm. really lends itself to that. Yeah, I kind of feel like Breakfast Club is like an old person's movie to show young people that's like, yeah, I get it. I was there too, kids. I used to right. smoke. I used to smoke doobies. You want to see Emilio Estevez cry? I get it. I've been there. Some of it still resonates. Some of those emotional scenes still hit. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. A movie like Twenty One Jump Street felt way more true to my experience in the early two right. thousands. So these these movies are definitely not like evergreen. They're only meant to be enjoyed for a while. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think. Teen movies are made for a specific generation, like more so than any other genre. And very few of these movies make it out with any dignity at all. Right. Mm -hmm. There's just a very few that have kind of stood the test of time. And one that comes to mind is uh, American Graffiti, Mm. which in my mind is the ultimate teen movie. And I think one thing that kind of sets it apart is your lack of pop culture references that really give some of these other movies like a very short shelf life. You know, like we, we totally grasp the culture 
without using too many idioms, something that may really age a movie more than it needs to be aged. I hear what you're saying, but in that same vein, I'd also like to bring up a movie that you mentioned, Juno. When Juno was released, I was in high school. I did not want to see the movie because I hadn't seen a trailer and my mom was just like, it's a movie about a pregnant girl. And I was like, oh, cool. But then when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is super funny and cool. And the reason a movie like Juno works is because your lead character is so weird and in her own little bubble. And like, there's always going to be people like that in high school. So I think that a lot of times, if you can make a character such an individual, I almost feel like the time period doesn't matter. Like, think about John Bender. Like, if you walk into a high school today, you'll probably find some weirdo just like that. Well, I agree. I think it's a lot about the voice of who the writer was. A movie Mm -hmm. like Juno... Mm -hmm. Like that dialogue is obviously so iconic, so particular. I think if you showed it to, you know, a modern teenager, it might seem a little bit goofy to them, that dialogue. But there's also like right. an oh, a sense of like it, they just kind of own it. Does that make sense? Right. Like the, the right. tone is very consistent. It's like you're watching Juno right now. Sometimes right. with teen movies, I feel like it's like an old dude in his 40s like trying to capture what a teenager sounds like. And that to me always feels like super uncomfortable. I'll say like watching Breakfast Club, there was one or two moments, you know, there's like a moment where he's like, did you give her that hot beef injection? I'm like, a 40 year old wrote that for a teenager to say, right. <laughs> like, what a bizarre movie I'm watching right now. So, right. yeah, it, I, I think it's it depends on the writer a lot. And I think those pop culture references that you brought up, Brandon, they're kind of necessary to speak the language of the time. But that is what makes them not have a long shelf life unfortunately right right i was just kind of racking my brain a little bit um with some of the teen movies that might have been popular when i was in high school and you know there's the uh can't hardly wait 10 things i hate about you and she's all that and save the last dance a walk to remember like i remember these were cherished by high schoolers and i was just completely uninterested in this genre that was telling me what my culture's about. Right. I think that the only movie that you just mentioned that I think holds up is 10 Things I Hate About You. But you look at that cast and they're incredible. And it's also based on Shakespeare. So yeah. I think that it's kind of built yeah. in to be a little more than meets the eye. I was also thinking about a movie that just came out recently, Booksmart. Yeah, yeah. I'd really be interested to know how high schoolers feel about that and if they feel that that movie is accurate to their experience, because mm-hmm. it seems a little over the top to me, but not in a way that's like bad. It seems like it's almost played for comedy, how like cartoonish some of these high school students are in the film. But I'd be really curious to, you know, see if someone who just graduated were to say, yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, I'm curious about that, too. I really enjoyed that movie, but I noticed like the teacher, Miss Fine, literally goes to a party with students, gets wasted and hooks up with one of the male students. Like, it's a movie that's like very progressive in some ways, but then there's weird stuff like that in it. And I just feel like none of these movies are ever like airtight. Like I I grew up, I really liked all right, I'm about to out myself. I really liked the Twilight movies and the Twilight books when I was growing up. <laughs> and Zach is taking off his headphones. He's walking out of the room. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, stop it, please. Stop laughing at me. 
but but I mean, you you engage with that uh, like a year or two later, and you're like, oh, this is an abusive relationship. None of this is okay. They're stalking and controlling behavior. So I mean, sometimes the things. Sometimes the things that seem okay when you're like 14, just give it a little bit of time and it's not okay anymore. Yes, I agree. Well, no one gets along with their parents in the breakfast club. On top of that, Richard Vernon is a clueless loon. Is this movie unfair to its adult figures? And I think it I think it does have a tendency to cast adults in a rather severe light. One of the things that the kids keep referencing is the amount of pressure they're under, whether it's from their friends or their parents. It's something they are, you know, experiencing all in different ways. And Brian even goes as far as talking about this bone crushing pressure he's under to get straight A's and how he's considering taking his life when the best he can do is come out of his his class with a B. I think one thing we've seen as a culture is the opening of some of these lines of communication between parents and their kids. And I think back to like the greatest generation who came home from war and they, you know, were not able to relate to their kids. They, you know, they had just been through so much. Right. And I think there's a lot of, like you were saying, Brennan, there's a lot of expectation from, I think, especially high school students, because when you start to hang out with other kids, you meet their parents. And sometimes like their parents seem really cool because, you know, they let you like stay up late or, you know, they they get pizza for you or or whatever, like whatever it is. And then there's some kids who you go to their house and their parents are kind of like, you know, oh, you know, these people are the worst. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times in high school, you do, unfortunately, start to kind of measure your parents based on other parents. Yeah, I, I would agree. The 80s were you know, the age of alienation when you're talking about parents, the moms were kind of entering the workforce and and dads were doing the same. And uh, this spurred all those 90s movies about dads working too much and how that's the worst Mm -hmm. crime that you could commit. (laughs) And then, you know, it started to gradually shift into the more helicopter parenting that we see today. There's a lot of forces behind that. But I I do think that that would make, you know, current audiences. There's a little bit of a a gap, I think, in understanding there of the way that parents and children interacted that's changed i remember the there was a this american life uh, episode where ringwald watched this movie with her kid and that scene you described brandon where anthony michael hall kind of breaks down molly ringwald's kid started to break down and cry and she said that moment really made her feel a lot of sympathy for the parents of the movie because there is this i think pressure we all feel as kids from our parents even when our parents aren't trying to do that at all they're doing everything right so i i think those moments are true and they're universal, uh, but there is also some cultural context to keep in mind, too. Yeah, and I think that also goes back to like just a breakdown in communication. Some of these parents could have been putting real pressure on their children. Like, it seems like the jock's dad was a very intense, you know, we saw him for yeah. what a minute. And I got the impression he was a very intense man and probably was putting some very real pressure on on his kid to be the best we don't know all the situations and we don't really know that one that well i really feel like some of this could be the result of just miscommunication and maybe check and see how your kid is doing to speak directly to the question is this movie unfair to its adult figures i'm gonna say no 
And I want to point out Carl, the janitor. I think that Carl is a very well-realized character. He's seemingly a bit of comedic relief, but he's also just, you know, we see he's a good person. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, I, I would push back on Vernon being clueless. I don't think Vernon is clueless. I just think he doesn't care. He like he doesn't want to be there and he has to be. I think he's a bad teacher. More evidence based on the scene when he tries to fight a 16 year old. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think he doesn't seem interested in understanding those students at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I think in the 70s and 80s, there was this <laughs> outbreak of defiant students so like students who were borderline uncontrollable i hear like crazy stories from my dad when he was in high school and Mm -hmm. he he was a pretty rowdy high schooler just just from just from stories that he's told me but there were also these male teachers kind of peppering the system that could not be shown up by a student uh had massive egos would resort to physical violence, a lot of verbal violence, and just like just a very toxic culture in in, in our in our schools. And watching the Breakfast Club now and hear and re- recalling the stories that my dad would tell me, Vernon seemed like he could have been a teacher my dad had, absolutely. Just like that bravado and all this like grandstanding and mm-hmm. flexing. It just felt like really like if you if you're that insecure and if your ego <laughs> is so wrapped wrapped up in <laughs> what these kids think, you are absolutely in the wrong profession. You should right. not be a teacher. If your skin is that thin, if a kid can get to you that easily, you're in the wrong profession. You absolutely right. are. Hey, show Dick some respect. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, all he wants. Also, he just he wants respect. That's all he wants. All right. Also, I would like to make a public statement like I did on um, our Sandlot episode. I was a little shocked doing my research to find out that there are people who are sympathetic towards Vernon in the scene when he threatens physical violence against Bender. There's people who are like, well, Bender's basically an adult. Bender's really pushing his buttons. Dear actual adults of the world and educators, you can never threaten Physical violence on a child. You're the, you're a monster and you lose if you do that. Mm. <laughs> and you lose. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to hit on this question to Zach. I'm going to push back. I feel like the Breakfast Club plays out like this manifesto against moms and dads and authority figures in some ways. Right. Like the opening shot is literally a quote from Bowie about children being <laughs> spit on. And then glass shatters. And then Bender says anyone who doesn't get along with their parents is a liar. And, you know, Ali Sheedy says, when you grow up, your heart dies. Like, it's just punch after punch after punch of like, you know, anything that is adult is bad. And any adults who would condescend to try to tell them what to do. Like, I feel like there's a reason this movie kind of solidified that Brat Pack moniker. Uh, (laughs) There is a little bit of, like you said, Brandon, just that defiance in the culture, in the generation that, I don't know, I sympathize with the adult characters now. Like the mom who says, find a way to study at the beginning when they're in the car. I'm like, that's something I can see myself saying to my kid. You know, it's I don't know. I don't think they're quite as bad as the movie tries to portray them as. 
there's a lot of shocking subject matter in this movie, and some of it doesn't seem appropriate in 2019. Is saying something is out of its time a lame cop-out to excuse problematic issues? Yeah, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Yes. Uh, I, I, I get super frustrated when people say, oh, that's just the way things were. Hold on. Right. And, and my evidence, I'll just start with this story. Molly Ringwald's mom protested and protested and protested the famous underwear shot in this movie mm-hmm. and could not get it taken out of the movie. Originally, there was a scene with a naked male gym teacher in the movie as well, but they were able to protest and get that taken out. So I think they knew what was not appropriate. I feel like movies like The Breakfast Club really exemplify like women telling men what is not okay, and then the men just saying, nope, don't care, and doing what they want right. to do. Yeah. So, so yeah, I do think it's a lame cop-out. Right. I remember when I saw this movie for the first time being shocked by Bender's homophobia. And yeah. like you were saying, Mitch, the, the underwear scene, which I wrote the assault scene because that's uh-huh. what it is. Yes. Both are played for laughs in the movie. And look, I wasn't around in the 80s, so... I understand that homophobic jokes were more common, which doesn't make it right because that's always offensive. But on the other hand, what generation wants to claim assault? And I don't think it's always played as a joke. I mean, I think it's used as a slur, too, in the movie sometimes. Like the hazing description that Estevez gives, you know, of taping the buns together. Initially, everyone's reaction is is to laugh. But there's another scene where Bender, like, he makes fun of him for being a wrestler because he's like, that's gay, essentially. Right. So right. like being gay is like the worst thing that you could be in 1980s America. The first time I saw this movie, do you know what I thought Bender's arc was going to be? What? That he was secretly gay or something? Yeah, I thought that like because he was talking about it so much that when I was a kid, I was just like, is this is this his arc? Are they setting this up? I have to, for a second, go back to American Graffiti and how they didn't feel the need to ingratiate the movie with these idioms of the time. And that's why it is more timeless. And, you know, and someone may say, like, well, you can't accurately grasp the culture of that time if you don't include these things. But I don't think that's necessarily true, because what we're talking about is like name calling and disrespectful behavior like those are the problems that we're discussing right now those are the the issues that arise is like when they you know they use a slang they uh, they dig on someone that's one facet of teen culture is kind of the the disrespectfulness of of it i just real quick wanted to contrast a movie like Django Unchained that uses the N-word an ungodly amount of times. So, like, where is the line between a movie like that, which feels appropriate? That's like something that, you know, not to everyone, but it feels like it's using it appropriately. And then a movie like The Breakfast Club, where it's like it it really feels quite harsh and grating. Well, I'm going to push back on the idea that it feels appropriate in Django. I think it feels a little bit fetishized in Django as well, like... Yes. Tarantino does not have a great history with the N word. He really likes <laughs> using it. So yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's that's a good point. I don't know where where the line is when striving for authenticity. There is always that veil of well, you're not living in that time anymore. You should know better. Problematic stuff. I have never understood why people love Bender so much. 
because I've never liked him. Like, it was exhausting, this rewatch, every time his character was on screen. I don't know why anyone sticks up for him. Like, I don't know why they don't rat him out immediately every time he does something. I just don't understand the appeal of this character. And he's played as the hero after he does all of this awful stuff, too. All right, well, let's talk about the fingerless gloves that he's sporting. Right away, I know he's a, he's not a good person, right? I don't trust him. Right. But then, in like the first fifteen minutes of the movie, he threatens to rape Molly Ringwald. Uh, he said, "Let's get her in the broom closet and and impregnate her." And by the end of the movie, she gives him a diamond, and they're making out. I'm just yeah. so confused how he he gets that hero's arc. I agree. It's it's bizarre that they reward him in this movie. I just don't understand yeah. it. There's something that really does bother me about his character. And I think it's the way he walks in the library and he's like knocking stuff off the desk and grabbing things. And it's like, it just really feels like he was trying to play up this, this criminal persona. Like, Hey, everyone says I'm a criminal. So I'm going to act like a criminal. These kids, they are, they play into these stereotypes a little bit, but he, you know, is the one with drugs in his locker. Yeah, I mean, the the moments he's not sexually harassing Claire, he's taking out his rage on her with just like this vicious contempt. Like he calls her pathetic, queenie. He screams that she's a B word. He fat shames her in the future somehow. Like right. he's like, he, yeah. <laughs> they just pile, <laughs> they pile on to Molly Ringwald. And it really, it really actually frustrates me. Uh, when I right. watch the movie, because I'm like, she's done nothing to deserve the amount of disdain that she receives. Like uh, the virgin scene really bothers me, too, where they keep yeah. several times. They're like, are you a virgin? Are you a virgin? The, in this movie, it's like if you if you're a virgin, like it's like if you're a cop, like you have to tell me, like, are you a virgin? Uh, and I just don't understand why they press in and, and treat Molly Ringwald's character so harshly. Yeah, right. Let's address the baby elephant in the room. There's a very controversial scene at the end of this film where Claire gives Allison a makeover. And uh, this historically had a very polarizing response. Uh, so where where do you land on this? Do you land on that she sold out or that this is not a problem? <laughs> I think according to John Hughes, girls can't talk to each other unless they're putting makeup on each other. That's the way it felt. <laughs> Like literally throughout the movie, the whole time they're at each other's throats, like they're not kind to one another. But suddenly when, you know, we slap a little eyeliner on Ali Sheedy, she's worthy of Emilio Estevez. It's just it's yeah, it's Ugh. insulting. Well, speaking of stuff that bothered us towards the end, I'm really frustrated. I, I'm, I haven't struggled with suicidal ideation, but it bothers me Ooh. that someone who brings in a weapon into school like only receives a detention and it's kind of treated like a joke. Right. And, and, you know, his depression is cured by the power of like weed and dancing and doing other people's homework. <laughs> like it's, it's such, it's just such a serious issue for them yeah. to be like, right. What lets you write the essay? You're cured of wanting to kill yourself. Right. I don't, I don't like it. I don't get it. Oh, it was a flare gun? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, funny. 
I think it's played for laughs because of how hilarious his scenario played out. He brings this flare gun into school, which is typically a non-lethal weapon, and it goes off in his locker. And I'm assuming his, you know, his locker was the one where he saw like charred items laying out yeah. in front of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, because th- this series of unfortunate events took place, you know, he ends up in <laughs> detention and then it's played for laughs. So I feel like they do breeze over the fact that he was actually talking or thinking about taking his life you know he was this was crossing his mind he may have been bad at carrying it out but that doesn't mean it's funny everyone in this movie has an identity defined by their peers and by the adults who are supposed to know better does this movie reinforce stereotypes or subvert them? And I think, you know, we spend maybe like 90% of the movie reinforcing these stereotypes and like the last few minutes trying to bring it all together and make sense of it. And I'm not a hundred percent sure the movie does make much sense of it. You know, (laughs) uh, some, some highlights and you know, we've, we've talked about them a little bit already, but some highlights from, kind of like those last few minutes of the, the movie, the jock notices the shy girl only after Claire gives her a makeover. And, you know, the princess uses the criminal to get back at her parents. So, you know, yeah, and right. there, there's a little scene where they kiss on the hood of right. her, uh, her dad's car. And then they all use the Brian, the smart kid, you know, mm-hmm. to write their essay. And uh, I think maybe the one thing the movie does well is in some respects, urge the audience to, you know, learn about people who are, you know, different from you, people who you may have had some assumptions about. And I think, it, you know, if you could say like one thing about the movie, you can't judge a book by its cover. I think you you have to kind of open that book up and, and, you know, begin, begin reading, which is something that these characters, you know, are only able to do after they smoke weed and dance. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brandon, just to piggyback on, on what you were saying, I, I wrote down that, yeah, it a million percent reinforces. Like you were saying, yeah. Bender leaves. He says, see you next Saturday with a new girl on his arm. Princess has a new boyfriend who's dangerous. And again, Brian does everyone's work. The basket case gets a makeover, which she hates. The only person who seems to have made any change at all is the athlete, which is evidenced by him now being interest in Allison, whereas he had an interest in Princess Claire in the film's first act. Yeah, <laughs> you're so right. If you take out the dancing montages in this movie, it's like 35 minutes long. It's it's so much of the movie. <laughs> or or the running in the halls. Yeah, the Scooby-Doo-esque uh, running scenes in the hall. A man who like- leads the way! <laughs> A man who leads the way. Is there some rule like in an 80s movie? Like if, you know, Kevin Bacon doesn't jump out and start shaking his butt, like the universe is going to explode. I just don't. I don't know. He is pouring, dancing in the twilight. I don't, I don't know what you're saying right now. Uh, that's, when yeah. he, that's when they're running through the halls. Don't uh, you forget about me. <laughs> Well, yeah, Brennan, like I wanted to hit on what you said. Obviously, like the main point is don't judge a book by its cover, which right. to me, that is not a revolutionary lesson. No, not um, at all. What? No, like it's 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 pretty. It's, it's pretty surfacey. <laughs> so yeah. are you kidding? No, this, this is not going to change anyone's. 
I don't know. It's not it's not a it's not going to life change anyone. But I, I do think the way that the story is told through these long, drawn out conversations that build to these emotional climaxes, it's the way it's done that feels authentic or maybe unique. I think the dialogue Hughes does have an ear for dialogue, so it feels particularly yes. strong in some areas. Uh, so I yeah. do think a lot of teenagers for a certain generation watched this and thought, oh, that's me for the first time. Like, they're, right. mm-hmm. uh, like it's important to remember, too. I think there was before John Hughes came along, like it was pretty much after school specials on one side of the spectrum or like horror movies where the teens are like, you know, sexy and, and dying. Uh, there was right. not or a lot kids of farting. Yeah. Or like porkies or something like or something gross, like Animal <laughs> House. Like there's not there's just not a lot of. <laughs> stuff before Hughes came along. So the things he's pointing out, they may be kind of banal, but he's pointing them out in a way that feels authentic. I think the best writing in the movie is when they have that scene about, you know, on Monday, will are we still going to be friends? There's Mm. the scene where, you know, Andrew and Claire are both like, you know, we're probably going to go back to being awful. And Brian has that moment when he says, you know, I want you to know that I would not do that. I will not. And for a minute, like Mm -hmm. as the audience member, you totally believe him and it's so beautiful. And then Claire has her line when she goes like, it it really wouldn't matter. And the thing is, is I think that that's great writing because you have two characters who are absolutely right. Like you, when Brian Mm -hmm. says, I will not do that. I a million percent believe him. And, Mm -hmm. but then the next line is literally just like, but it's, but it's not that big a deal. I'd like to point out some uh, stereotypes in the lunch scene. And I think I think that might actually <laughs> I think that actually might be my favorite scene from the movie. You know, the jock pulls three sandwiches out of his lunch bag. The wealthy popular girl has the sushi plate, which like sushi. How did you keep that cold? That stuff's kind of dangerous when it gets to yeah. be room temperature. That must have been real nice. You know, and then <laughs> I think that's where it breaks down a little bit. I didn't quite understand why the shy girl loves sugar so much and she ate the Captain Crunch sandwich. Really? Because she's not like other girls, Brandon. She's not like other girls. Okay. that Wonderful. But the best <laughs> by far was Judd Nelson's character doesn't have a lunch and steals from the smart kid. And I think that, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I knew every one of you in the lunchroom. I really like that scene, actually, because I think it makes me empathize with Bender's character and the bullies who were taking lunches. I'm like, oh, there may be a reason. Yeah, because it's bringing up a class disparity thing. He has no food. He comes from a broken home. Right. I was going to say I used to work somewhere with Brandon and Brandon's (laughs) lunch was a lot like Andrew's. In that, you know, Brandon's the baseball player and he would show up at work with, you know, sandwich, glass of milk, big old jug of water, big old thing of (laughs) chips, some cookies. So, you know, the movie's right. Athletes, athletes bring a big lunch. Zach is just dunking on Brandon. I I don't know even where to start with this. I think the most identifiable thing about Andrew's lunch is the fact that he has three sandwiches. And Never, a giant I'm, bag I'm, of cookies, by the and, way. And a, yeah. a, whole, yes. a whole bag of cookies. Never did I show up with three sandwiches to lunch. No, but it was always very exquisite. Okay, well, careful. You're mixing your metaphors over there. 
I was I was giving you a compliment. I was saying you're like the only character with an arc in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. He is my favorite. He is my favorite. Yeah, no, he's he's great. Mm. I I I gotta tell you though, Gordon Bombay playing a tough kid was it took me a little while to get into it. I was like, it was a little laughable for me when he was challenging the kid, uh, challenging <laughs> Judd Nelson's character in the beginning and just some of the, like yeah. the terminology and language he was Two using. Hits, I hit you, you hit the floor. Yeah. <laughs> you don't look at her. You don't talk to her. It is too much. It's too it was a little, a little heavy, a little heavy handed. Yeah. I expected a little more from a Christian podcast. You're not fooling anyone, Dupree. The next screw that falls out is going to be you. The Breakfast Club was pretty dated. What was that? The Breakfast Club is dated. You just bought yourself another Wednesday at the mic. Well, John Bender's a flawed character. The fact that he's portrayed as the hero of the story proves how dated this film is. You just bought yourself another Wednesday, mister. The female characters don't have any realistic conversations with each other. You just bought one more right there. Well, I'm free the Wednesday after that. Just like how John Hughes plays fast and loose with the adult characters in his story, making the film feel even more dated. Good! Instead of focusing on the negative elements, you could look at the positives. Even though some of the characterization is dated, the themes are unfortunately timeless. Teenage pressure, abuse, depression, wanting to fit in, being frustrated. Say the word, just say the word. Are you through? No. Those themes that I just mentioned still impact teens to this day. So? That's another one. This film tries to provide a voice for its teenage audience, and that element is timeless. You want another one? Yes. The film at times feels like a middle-aged man pretending to be a teen. You got it. That's another one. You through? Not even close, bud. Good, you got one more right there. Do you think teens can relate to characters with cartoonishly flawed authority figures? Another. You through? How many is that? That's seven, including when we talked about how everyone ganging up on Claire makes us feel bad for Molly Ringwald. Now it's a you stay out of this. Excuse me, sir. The scene where Claire and Allison bond over makeup is an example of poor writing. Shut up, Pee-wee. You're mine, Dupree. You shared a negative opinion of a beloved film, and now you're mine. What can I say? I'm thrilled. Oh. I'm sure that's exactly what you want these listeners to believe. While The Breakfast Club contains some dated jokes and overly 80s dialogue, the themes are timeless. These are characters that we can relate to, we understand their struggles, and as a result, we feel heard. Dated or timeless. You might want to spend a little more time thinking about how a movie can be both. You might just be better off. It, the it coolest totally dang janitor in any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> My boy, Carl. I go through your lockers. <laughs> I am the eyes and ears of this institution. Carl wins. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's 
going to do it for our episode on The Breakfast Club. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, hop on over to our Facebook page and join the conversation. We can be found at the Is It Really Podcast. We would love to hear your opinion on our episodes or just movies in general. We are always trying to post entertaining and thought-provoking articles or polls to get things rolling, and we would love for you to jump in. Don't forget, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're up to it, please give us a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye.